Welcome to Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. On this week's episode, we pay tribute to Peter Bonetti, the legendary Chelsea goalkeeper who died this past weekend. We'll also ask whether potential FFP relaxations will lead to a blue spending spree. Plus, we've got an update on Gianluca Viali. That's all to come on this edition of Straight Out of Cobham. So how are you doing, listener? Hopefully the current ways of the world haven't given you the blues. If so, we're here to talk about the blues to hopefully cheer you up. But who is we? Well, in my case, Matt Davis-Adams, but I'm merely the bread in the sandwich of this show. We need some filling, otherwise it's just dry bread. Uh, Dominic Fifield, the latest squad member to be on, inverted commas, holiday. Uh, he sends his regards from his paddling pool. With me on the line are the Athletics Dynamic Duo. It's a big hello to Simon Johnson. Hello. Oh, I was suitably enthusiastic. <laughs> and joining Simon is the one and only Liam Toomey. Hello. Right, the number one item on our agenda today is arguably Chelsea's greatest ever number one. So it was announced on Easter Sunday that Peter Benetti had passed away aged 78 after a long battle with illness. Benetti was a Chelsea boy through and through. From Putney, he was given a trial by the club after his mother wrote a letter to Chelsea. After helping the Young Blues win the FA Youth Cup for the first time in 1960, he made his first team debut as an 18-year-old and would go on to play 729 games for the club across the best part of 20 years. Only Ron Harris has worn a Chelsea shirt more often. Benetti was between the posts as Chelsea lifted the FA Cup, the League Cup and the European Cup Winners' Cup for the first time in the club's history. In the latter years of his playing career, he was the voice of experience in a youthful team who won promotion back to the top flight in 1977. One of his teammates that season was Clive Walker. These days, he's my co-commentator at Chelsea TV. Pleased to say Clive joins us now. Uh, Clive, before you broke through to the first team, Peter had already done so. Uh, were he and the likes of Peter Osgood and Ron Harris the kind of players you and your fellow youth teamers looked up to given that they'd already made that journey you were hoping to yeah of course I mean it was amazing that um you know we we used to at times get to train with these guys but um also to watch them on a match day we used to sit in the old north stand as it were uh, right at the top and and watch these guys perform and when you find yourself training with them playing with them it's uh, it's an honor to have these guys with this sort of experience um, and Peter was no exception although he's a goalkeeper still had plenty of experience and information that he wanted to get out to us so it was great to have him in the squad. So you go from from that occasional training sessions to, to being teammates in that 76-77 side which had a great blend of youth and experience must have been great and invaluable to, to have people like Peter around for, for the likes of yourself Tommy Langley, Ray Wilkins, Ray Lewington all to lean on. Yeah, well, you've got to remember the names you just mentioned and, and, and others like you know Steve Wicks and, of course, there was uh, Graham Wilkins in the side as well. We were all youngsters and we'd grown up together. We'd all played in the, well, the two youth systems that we had at the time, come through the reserves together. Um, and then to be able to play together in the same team, we needed guidance, we needed help. And the likes of Peter Bonetti and Ron Harris, who was still around, it was so important to us, although at the time, I suppose we could say we felt that some of the information was was bullish at, at times. But I think looking back, I think we needed that. And I think it really worked. And although everybody had their own styles, Peter was certainly the, 
arm around the shoulder type of guy who'd take you to one side and say, you know what, you did well there, or do you know what, if you try something a little bit different. And he was that type of guy. He really took you under his wing if he felt you needed to to have a little bit more consoling. So by the time that you became teammates, he'd come back from that brief spell in America, but it, but it looked as though he was coming back just to sort out a, a transfer away. Uh, lo and behold, he manages to, to re-establish himself as, as first choice keeper. It looked as though his, his time at the club was up at that point. W- were you surprised that he was able to, to get back to being the number one? Uh, do you know what? I wasn't surprised. I remember when I first joined the club and, and we were training down at the old Mitcham training ground and we used to do these cross-country runs and Peter was at the front every single time and you just look at his physique I mean he wasn't the biggest of goalkeepers but he was super fit and for someone like him to to come back and and prove himself fitness wise was probably tough for, for most people but for, for him it was it was a normal thing to do so fitness wise he was always able to do that mentality was absolutely brilliant so you can understand that coming back into the team for him was just like going back to work again. I mean, it was just so simple for him. He just dropped straight back into it and, again, proved himself over and over again. You've touched on this briefly. We know plenty about Peter Bonetti, the goalkeeper. Tell us a bit more about the man and the kind of character that he was around the play. Well, I think from from our perspective as being youngsters and, and not played too many games, it was more about where he'd been and of course don't forget you know his his World Cup exploits as well his England experience he was someone to look up to someone to respect um, and someone who had that tone about him that just said you know what if he talks you listen and I, I think he had those moments in the dressing room where it was important for him to get his word over and him and he was a complete gentleman um, he was very honest and I think you learn that very very quickly that this guy was someone to listen to. There were other people in the in the group that were, went about their work in a different way, and they felt that you know being strong and powerful was was their way of doing it. But Peter was a different type, and I think he was more of the modern day coach type, arm around the shoulder type of guy that, that at that particular time some of us needed, and and it certainly worked. Of course, outside of Chelsea, he was. Unfairly, some would say, made a scapegoat for, for 1970 and England's World Cup defeat to West Germany. Did, did you ever speak to him about it and, and did you ever get the feeling that that hung over him at all or, or was he able to, to use that as inspiration to perhaps even help you guys and, and how to cope with adversity? Yeah, I don't think it was something that really needed to be discussed on a one-to-one. I think it, it, at the time, um, I think he was harshly treated. Uh, and I don't think that anybody should be treated in that particular way because of what happened. But I, but I don't think it bothered. And I say it didn't bother him. It was always probably in the back of his mind. But he was he was strong of character. And I think when you're strong of character, you come through adversity and 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 you just get on with your job. And he was Simon such a professional that I don't think those sorts of things. And I'm sure he made many mistakes over his career and he'll probably be the one of the first to have admitted that so I don't think it's something that would have affected him um, playing wise as as we always say once we cross that white line as players our focus is on the next 90 minutes and I think you don't tend to to think about what you did three four ten years ago whatever and I think I think the number of games that Peter went on to play and at the top of his game as well and we mustn't forget of course 
was it just over 200 clean sheets, which I think Petr Cech was the next guy to, to beat in about 2013-14. So, you know, it was, a, it was a fabulous career he had. And I think if there was any doubts in his mind, I think we, that would have shone through. But his career was, was absolutely fa- fabulous. One of the interesting things I saw about uh, Peter when I was reading up about him um, was that he was he was a little under six foot tall, like five ten, five eleven, which is maybe not that unusual for goalkeepers of that era. But certainly, you know, we'd expect goalkeepers in the in the modern age to be slightly taller and maybe more imposing. But am I right in thinking that he had this real presence about him when he was in goal that he he, he projected this confidence and 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 made his defenders feel feel more secure because of it? I think he was one of those goalkeepers that had such agility, Liam, that was outstanding. Yes, he wasn't the tallest of goalkeepers. He didn't have, let's say, the presence of a Peter Schmeichel, someone like that, or even a Gordon sure. Banks to that point. But I think he must have realised at some stage in, in his early career that being positive, being confident would get him a long way because he had the agility. I mean, I often say that we used to for some reason they used to put me in the wall when there was a free kick and I used to think this is this is not very difficult to get out of my head because I wasn't the tallest <laughs> but when the ball went over the top of your head sometimes you used to think that's in and then you just look over your shoulder and there's the cat flying across his goal and albeit not the tallest and not not able to make the stretch that other goalkeepers could make but his footwork and his agility made up for that and his confidence was unbelievable. He also used to come for a lot of crosses, you know. Some goalkeepers who were not the biggest, um, an example these days, possibly Matt Ryan at Brighton, you know, not the tallest, don't come for everything. Well, Peter used to come for everything. And I think when you're a defender working with a goalkeeper like that, you learn. You learn about his style. And I think the defenders around him, you've got to remember people like John Dempsey, you know, six foot two, he could cope. Mickey Droy even, to a point. They could cope with high balls, but Peter would still come and take them or come and try and claim them. His confidence was massive. And I think that was something that you, you saw reflect on him doing. And not only that, I think when he took crosses, he was ready to bowl the ball out, throw it out. He expected me as a winger to be further advanced and wide he expect his fullbacks you know the likes of Graham Wilkins and Gary Locke on the other side to be in wide positions to receive the ball after he caught it you know and even if he did drop one or two I don't think anyone blamed him for it because he was that type of guy Clive Walker there so Liam it's fair to call Benetti an innovator isn't it I mean just just reading the the tributes to him things like you know in terms of his playing style regularly coming off his line the things that that Clive has spoken about there you know rolling the ball out that kind of thing but but most famously introducing goalkeeping gloves a real a real forward thinker yeah absolutely I mean it's one of those things that from the moment goalkeepers started wearing gloves you wondered why they hadn't always done it and um yeah, for for Benetti to be to be the first to do that is show, shows what a what a forward thinking progressive mind he was, and um, you know hearing Clive talk about him, he really does sound like a modern goalkeeper. The the name that came to my mind was David de Gea, really, um, like a not not super imposing physical physically, um, but just incredibly agile and and able to project confidence into his defenders because of that skill set and uh and clearly he f- he functioned in a very different era 
um, with the back pass rule, which which obviously made um, keepers maybe less prone to, you know, less required to be sweeper keepers as we see these days. But he did; he still did do that by all accounts more than a lot of his contemporaries. And um, and I think he he he's one of those goalkeepers that you could probably look at and say that if he'd been born fifty years later he still would have been a really, really good goalkeeper and, and made it to the top level because he, he seems like his game would have translated quite easily. But clearly an, an absolute legend. And the, and the thing that strikes me is that, first of all, he broke into that Chelsea team so early and, and he stayed there for so long. I mean, his longevity, he, he crossed eras. He was teammates with Jimmy Greaves and Clive Walker. That's absolutely incredible. Simon, in terms of sort of standout games, there are many, but I think I think the one that most people think of is is the 1970 FA Cup final replay. Not only did he give a brilliant performance, he he effectively did it on one leg against Leeds. Yes, it's um, it was in front of a TV audience in the UK of uh, 28 million people, which is a, a phenomenal figure. Um, he he suffered a serious knee injury in the first half. Um, Chelsea and Leeds had quite a rivalry at the time and, and Mick Jones who's a, a quite an imposing Leeds player at the time jumped into Peter and um, he suffered a, a, a nasty knee injury so he's basically hobbling around for the rest of the game this was at a time when goalkeepers weren't um, you didn't have substitute goalkeepers on the bench um, so there was a choice really of either playing on or, or or going off and actually in an interview that the website has republished in light of Peter's sad uh, passing, um, in his own words he talks about it, and that David Webb, who went on to win, score the winning goal, would have been the backup goalkeeper uh, if Benetti had had to go off. A lot of Chelsea fans actually talk about how relieved they were that, that, that Peter Benetti came out for the second half. As it turned out, he had a, a pain-killing injection to get him through the game, but he pulled off a, a number of saves to help Chelsea get over the line. Uh, they won 2-1, but it's certainly one of the games which you ask any Chelsea fan from that era, they'll always remember fondly for the performance he put in. Liam, if, if we kind of put a modern slant on it to finish, uh, John Terry got to within 12 games of matching Peter's number of appearances for the club. Frank Lampard wasn't that far off either. And, and both of those players were, were kind of keenly aware of the achievements of Benetti and Ron Harris in, in terms of how many games they played and, and looked up to them. Yeah, I think um, with Terry and Lampard, you see two individuals that are very aware of their place within Chelsea's history and of and of you know the pride that that Chelsea have in in their history and and there's always been a kinship, I think, between uh, Terry and, and and Ron Harris in particular because of you know the positional comparison. But in terms of personalities, you can you can catch uh, quotes from from Lampard on Benetti on Chelsea's website at the moment and he speaks really highly of him says he first met him when he was working in hospitality at Stamford Bridge as of course you know a lot of Chelsea legends end up doing Chelsea are quite good in my experience at looking after their their former players and in in keeping them in the fold long after they've retired and um and Lampard said he was an absolute gentleman and and and, and really made a a good connection with him over the years. So Terry and Lampard were, were always very aware of the legends that came before them and it and it makes perfect sense that they would have incredible respect for for someone like Benetti. And I, I think you also see Benetti had a lot of 
respect for for Petr Cech when when Cech came along and, and overtook his clean sheet record. Well, after retiring from playing, Benetti rejoined Chelsea's goalkeeping coach in 1983. Go on to be part of Bobby Robson's England staff at Italian 90. As Liam mentioned in his later years, he was still a regular at Stamford Bridge as part of the match day hospitality team. A proper Chelsea legend in every sense of the word. Peter Benetti will be missed. Harry's sponsors Straight Out of Cobham, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who are sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave, weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover. Now, I've got a full lockdown beard going on at the moment, but thankfully, Harry's have sent me a shaving kit to get rid of it. I'm looking forward to getting cracking, and of course, I will let you know all about the results. As a listener of Straight Out of Cobham, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash Cobham right now. That's harrys.com forward slash Cobham. So last week we brought you a fascinating chat with Mark Taylor, who was Ken Bates' lawyer at the time he sold the club to Roman Abramovich. Go back and listen to that if you haven't. Uh, This week we're talking about Abramovich in 2020. This is off the back of the piece that Liam and Dom wrote, which is available on The Athletic now. Uh, In the piece, it's opined that a relaxation of FFP rules might persuade Abramovich to start spending again. Why is this, Liam? Well, I mean... The interesting thing about where we are, where football as a sport is amid the shutdown, is that all bets are off, really, in terms of the financial regulations that exist. You know, that all clubs are feeling a a financial pinch to, to some degree or another. We've seen clubs up and down the English football pyramid furloughing staff and and kind of lobbying players to to take pay cuts. Chelsea haven't done that in part because they have a super rich benefactor in Abramovich um, and that's enabled them to to continue to pay everyone a full wage while maintaining their extensive community work. We've seen all the, all the good things they're doing um, in relation to NHS staff and that same reason, um, the presence of Abramovich, could actually be an advantage for Chelsea in the next transfer window as and when it happens because if UEFA as you know is being heavily suggested right now do relax or even suspend financial fair play for a period and the Premier League relax their own financial rules to allow clubs to get their financial um, accounts in order then the clubs with super rich benefactors have an opportunity to to separate themselves because they they're not being limited in what they can spend. The only limitation on Abramovich, if that situation arises, will be the limits he sets for himself and, and maybe the limits of even richer clubs like PSG and Man City. Oh, obviously, that it wouldn't be like 2005 again because Abramovich isn't the only rich person in the playground and he's certainly not the, uh, the, the richest one anymore. But Chelsea would be in a in a relatively rare position of being able to spend big in maybe what is a constricted market and 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 
what a lot of people in football are suggesting could be a buyer's market. And so that's why I think there's there's an interesting question for Abramovich now. And none of us know what's going on in his head. But if the situation arises, it will be a good insight into how he wants to run Chelsea going forward. Simon Abramovich, obviously the main man, but what do we think the attitudes to a spending spree would be for, for the other key players at the club? I'm thinking the likes of Bruce Buck, Marina Granovskaya and Frank Lampard in particular. Is, is this something they'd be on board with or, or would they be keen to kind of keep on going down the uh, youth development route? Oh, I get the impression that, and this was even before this uh, the coronavirus crisis sort of hit football struck, that the summer had already been earmarked as, as a big one as far as everyone within Chelsea were concerned that they were looking to make significant signings um, to bridge the gap um, to Liverpool and Manchester City. Now, of course, they'd, they'd already uh, started with with their recruitment process in, in Zayac, making a very early move. But it was um, there was certainly money on the table to go out and, and, and spend significantly on other players. Now, this, this might actually help Chelsea in that as Liam infers, that it's a buyer's market. There may be clubs that Chelsea were going to do business with that are going to be far more desperate for money. Um, and therefore, uh, in terms of negotiation process, Chelsea might be able to, and other clubs that are wealthy, might be able to exploit that because clubs will be desperate to perhaps sell some players to, to get some much-needed money in. So as far as Chelsea going forward, once this window opens, I expect them to be very busy but that's not to say they're just going to suddenly give up on their youth product and, and and the likes of Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham are no longer seen again. I, I think they've done enough already this season to warrant being part of the squad next season. Before we finish on, on Roman Abramovich and, and the club as is, Liam, in the piece as well, you, you point out that the work that Chelsea are doing in the community, much of it led by Abramovich, you know, including the, the work they're doing with the charity Refuge UK. I think it's worth shining some light on this because it, it feels to me like it's not been massively covered in the media. Obviously, that's not the reason why, why they're doing it principally, but I've been really impressed actually, with, with the response of Chelsea Football Club as a whole to, to the coronavirus pandemic and how they can help the, the local and the wider community. Yeah, I think they've they've really stepped up and, and led the way in a lot of respects among Premier League clubs. Um, I mean, it's fair to say that Chelsea Foundation has been, you know, one of the, one of the better funded and more ambitious um, charitable organisations in English football, I think, for a few years now, because... Uh, particularly centered around the the anti-semitism campaign which we know is a is a personal cause of abramovich um they've they they've really gone steps beyond what what we'd expect football clubs to to do um in in terms of trying to to benefit the community as a whole and and now the transition that we've seen since the coronavirus pandemic hit is that um a lot of that other work Obviously, the events they had planned for the anti-Semitism campaign have kind of been postponed and they'll be rescheduled for when things get going again. But the entire focus of the club or, or of that part of the club has been shifted by Abramovich um, to the public health crisis that we face. And and he's directed Bruce Buck and, and the other people at the club who, who, who handle the community outreach to... Um, to really do whatever they can and they're being encouraged they're being encouraged to come up with different ideas creative ideas 
Um, and I think that's partly where the, you know, making the Millennium and Copthorne hotels available to NHS staff came from. It's my understanding that the Copthorne Hotel will, will most likely be soon used by NHS staff as well. Um, and and there'll probably be more stuff coming further down the line, but we've seen it even with, with slightly smaller things, you know, like um, foundation staff and, and community coaches get calling the old and the vulnerable you know just for a chat just to just to keep them keep them company because a lot of these people are are not seeing other humans for for weeks on end during this during this time and i remember seeing on twitter um there was a, a screenshot of joe cole just chatting with with an old man who who happened to be a chelsea fan who's been one of those advised to to self-isolate for i think it's 12 weeks is the government guidelines so um Chelsea are, are doing lots of things, uh, probably too many to list here, and I think they'll continue to do so. And it, and it is, it is very admirable. And you don't get the sense that they're doing it just to be seen to do it. You know, a lot of this stuff they're not necessarily shouting from the rooftops about. It, it it's just happening, and, and and they're continuing to to invest as a as a community, um, as a community organisation as well as a football club. Yes, I mean, obviously you do get what Alan Partridge would call goodwill splashback from this kind of thing, but it does feel like it, it comes from a genuine place. And it's kind of a reminder that football clubs are, are community assets. And when this kind of thing happens, this, this is not what they should be doing, but what you would hope they would be doing. Absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's very easy to just think that football's all about winning games, winning trophies and Unfortunately, it's been sort of dominating the headlines over the last few weeks, all about money. Um, but this is a, an opportunity, an ideal opportunity for football to show the positive side. And it'd be wrong to um, get bogged down in, in the sort of negative issues that have been discussed in recent weeks and, and forget some of the good work that has been done. And, and Chelsea certainly, as Liam says, been leading leading the way in many respects. And I think from Chelsea's point of view, it's, it's the least they can do. All right, we're on the home stretch of this week's show, but before we go, let's finish with some good news. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic, fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style, budget, size and shape and your clothing needs and wants. A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each handpicked especially for you from our selection of 100 brands, including established names and -and up-and-coming designers. Try on everything at home and style with other items in your wardrobe. You can then pay for what you love and send back the rest. For your stylist time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. Remember, you try before you buy, delivery and returns are free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk slash athletic right now. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X.co.uk forward slash athletic. So it was announced this past weekend that the former Blues striker and manager Gianluca Viali has been given the all clear following a 17-month battle with pancreatic cancer. Viali won the FA Cup as a player with Chelsea in 1997, then became the first Italian to manage in the Premier League a year later. We'll have a little look back at his time at Chelsea now. We've spoken at length about one Chelsea legend today. Viali not quite in, in Peter Bonetti's league in that regard, but Simon, nonetheless, a significant figure in the club's history. Absolutely. I mean, he, he kind of was more of a figurehead as a, as a manager than as a player. He certainly had his moments as a as a striker, don't get me wrong, for, for Chelsea. Uh, 
a remarkable free transfer from Juventus just after they'd won the, the Champions League. But I think he's most fondly remembered um, by Chelsea fans of that era um, for, for what he did as a manager, of course, taking over from Rutelit, um in, in very sort of um, difficult circumstances. And his first game, I think, sort of sums up the man in many ways and certainly the, the sort of man management side of things where Chelsea had the second leg of a League Cup semi-final against Arsenal. And to uh, to get the players on side and, and to get them all ready for the game, he, he, he poured them a glass of champagne, which uh, <laughs> is certainly unusual. Um, but it did the trick because uh, Chelsea won that night, 3-1, uh, went through on aggregate, 3-2 if memory serves me right. And of course went on to win that League Cup final and also the, the Cup Winners' Cup. Um, so he, he certainly made his mark, um, then went back to Wembley in 2000 to get the FA Cup again um, before leaving a few months into the following season. And, and again, the, the outcry when he was when he was sacked... Um, there was certainly a lot of anger aimed towards Chairman Ken Bates at the time, um, but his legacy still lives on. And you got to remember, this was a Chelsea manager that didn't. He brought in some some good names. Chelsea was spending pretty well at the time, but this wasn't the Chelsea of the Abramovich era that could go out and and bring in lots of the best players in the world. They brought in one or two, but it was it was a time when Chelsea had gone many years without a trophy, sort of going back to the Bonetti era. Um, when, of course, 71 was the Cup Winners' Cup final, Rude Hullet won them the FA Cup in 97, and then Viali brought them another three trophies. So it was a very successful period for Chelsea at a time when not many people expected them to challenge the likes of Manchester United and Arsenal. Uh, just a note for producer Adonis, by the way, when we get back in the studio together, I, I think if we have a glass of champagne before we start, that would make the podcast um, <laughs> immeasurably better. Um, Liam... Simon's mentioned the trophies that, that Viali won as manager, you know, in a couple of them, the, the League Cup and the Cup Winners' Cup, the, the competitions were, were well underway by the time he took over. But, I mean, what surprised me looking it up again today before we came on air, he was only 33 when he was appointed. So some achievement to get those trophies in the bag, at, you know, as a rookie manager and at a time when he was still a player. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the whole player-manager dynamic is is really quite foreign to us now because it's it's so rare these days to, to have someone operating that dual role. And I think it's hard to even imagine how you would try to do it because how, how can you be friends with the players and yet also their boss? And I, th- I think that did actually cause problems for Viali later on. Um, and it was a shame for him the way it ended at Chelsea because... Um, I think there were there were a few players who were obviously really close to him as teammates who uh I think be, had had a few run-ins with him once he became their manager um certainly when when he became full-time manager in 1999-2000 and I think that was it, it's a it's a transition that anyone would have struggled with um and he certainly made you know mistakes maybe maybe he could have managed certain relationships better but to win what he won with that group in spite of um, making maybe the most difficult transition to management uh, that you can imagine at such a young age is really, really impressive. I mean, he was the most successful manager in Chelsea's history until Jose Mourinho came along. um, And that, that says it all. And um, yeah, I think, I think he, he, he really set the tone for what came next at Chelsea. And I think his 
particularly his experience at Juventus, maybe helped him bring that winning winning mentality to the dugout as well as the pitch. It, it was a really talented team at Chelsea, but I think he he came closest to getting them to put, to play consistent winning football. And and in some ways, even though it wasn't a trophy, I think uh, their title challenge in in 98-99 might have been his most impressive achievement. Simon, I'm, I'm interested in what Liam touched on there. The, the fact that he left under a bit of a cloud. An article in The Guardian for, from the time he was sacked in 2000 carries quotes from from Frank LeBeouf, who said, Viali has problems with everybody, Albert Ferrer and many others. Uh, Dan Petrescu went in even harder on him. Uh, the fans wanted me to play, but Viali didn't. His word is final. Viali never said anything to me. You can imagine the effect inside the Chelsea dressing room. This kind of thing is poisonous to team spirit. Uh, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, I felt very frustrated on the pitch and also in my relationships with Viali, which were difficult or even impossible. My next question was going to be, why do you think that his management career kind of died a quick death after after he left Watford? I'm guessing that's the key thing. If, if you can't maintain relationships with players, then, then it's going to be tricky to, to eke out a longer career as a successful manager. Yeah, and, and also you sort of wonder about Luca's sort of hunger um, to be in management in, in the sense of that he, he came from a very wealthy background anyway. Um, he actually didn't need football in his life um, because of his uh, rich roots. And he just got the impression that, that perhaps he, he, he preferred sort of going into the background a little bit more. He, he's not someone that that likes particularly sort of the, the spotlight um, and talking to the media. And he almost got the impression that, that perhaps he saw it as an opportunity to go into more of the punditry world. Um, I think he's done quite a lot of work back in, back in Italy um, for Italian television, for example. So I, I think, you know, maybe the particularly like managing Chelsea as a starting point is, is probably one of the toughest gigs you can get because it just shows even back then managing a dressing room of egos was incredibly difficult. Um, yes, he had his time at Watford, but you almost sort of feel like Chelsea was always going to be as good as it got for him. And, and perhaps he sort of thought now's the time to, to, to have a, a quieter, easier life. But um, let, let's just sort of reflect on the fact that his health has, has also been a, been a factor and it's great news that he's been given the all clear. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, these days he works as part of Roberto Mancini's staff with the Italian national team as well as his work for Sky Italia. He can still be seen at Stamford Bridge on occasion too, where he's always a welcome guest. OK, that's just about it for this week. Uh, chaps, what have you got up on The Athletic for people to read it and what's in the pipeline? Liam, you first. Sure, so I've got a big Kante piece which I've written alongside our analytics writer, Tom Worville. Um, it's already dividing Chelsea fans because it's it's talking about whether Kante is actually wasted in Lampard's system and 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 what Chelsea should do about that so so give that a read and and feel free to call us absolute idiots um <laughs> if if you so choose uh we've also got a, a big piece coming uh, Simon's taken the lead on this but there's a few of us contributing um on Andrei Shevchenko and his time at Chelsea and you've taken the lead on having a look at Sheva and uh, you've also contributed to the piece that, that Liam and Jack landed about the, the end of Chelsea's Brazilian experiment. Yeah, and, and sort of making the point that um, you, you go back a few years, as, as I sort of highlighted in the piece, that in, in 2015 there were five Brazilians on the pitch in the game against Swansea. I'm not saying that Chelsea would never sign another Brazilian again, 
But I don't think you'll ever see that kind of um, relationship again between Chelsea and Brazilian players. And we, we, we spoke to, between the three of us, we spoke to quite a few people um, about this. Um, and Chelsea do seem to have made a change of direction. But of course, if a player's good enough, that they'll sign them regardless of their nationality. But Chelsea certainly had um, a, a conscious attempt to sign Brazilian players at one point. They had a relationship with certain agents, Keir Jarabchin and, and Giuliano Bertolucci, which which gave them that opportunity to, to get those players. But um, they're now developing their own and, and the net is far wider. Uh, another piece that's coming in the this week is uh, an interview with a real Chelsea legend, uh, Steve Sidwell, uh, who who was perhaps um, one of the most surprising signings of um, particularly the Mourinho first spell. Um, he was a free transfer from Reading and I've basically uh, gone into depth with Steve, um, who talks quite a lot about his surprise when the phone call came, um, going around Mourinho's house, um, seeing him in his white slippers, and um and how the whole transfer unfolded but um yeah steve said well it's it's he may not be the biggest name that chelsea had but he makes for a fascinating read which i hope the readers will enjoy yeah one of those uh calamitous chelsea number nines of of that period uh listen remember if you're a subscriber to the athletic not only do you get to read the brilliant articles from liam and from simon but you can also get an ad-free version of this and the athletics many other fine football podcasts by listening through the app from Simon, from Liam and from myself, thanks for your company today. We'll catch up with you again next week. Mm-hmm.